Jason Lewis. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. As a reminder to our listeners, we do like to hear from you. Whether you have a topic suggestion or a question, or even better, you've taken action to help address climate change and want to share, drop us a line. Head over to our website, climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co and click the contact button at the bottom of the page. For some, the word overpopulation comes with a lot of baggage. Whether the ugliness of government-controlled population programs like China's two-child policy or the fact that while the developing world is responsible for most population growth, its per capita consumption is a fraction of the U.S. or Europe. But despite its fraught history, it's easy to find yourself asking how the world's population and climate change are connected to one another. And as a podcast that doesn't shy away from difficult conversations, we thought it was time to call an expert to help us better understand the relationship between the two issues. So today it's all about us, the nearly 8 billion of us. But before we get there, Thomas, you want to share this week's reason for hope with folks? Sure, Jason. So last Friday, the U.S. House passed a critical set of climate provisions as part of a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. It's now headed to Biden's desk for his signature. And as most of us know, we need to cut our carbon emissions by at least 50% by 2030. And according to the Rhodium Group, this bill, on top of existing actions, could enable the U.S. to cut emissions by 35 to 42% by 2030. And in addition to cutting carbon emissions, uh, this bill will also help cut conventional air pollution from power plants by up to 82%. So while there's obviously still a lot of work to do, this is a huge step in the right direction. What's your take, Jason? Yeah, just mostly relief. Relief that the US finally took a big step in the right direction. You know, as you said, we're not there yet, but it's it's all about momentum. And this is definitely momentum in the right way. And so you know, I noticed as well, you know, folks will be happy to see that by 2030, they save an extra $112 a year on energy costs. So, you know, all sorts of additional perks. Well, our guest today to help us talk about overpopulation is Hannah Evans. Hannah is a senior analyst at an organization called Population Connection that focuses on helping stabilize world population at a level that's sustainable with the Earth's resources through education and advocacy. A good mission, for sure. Her work investigates how population dynamics intersect with global social, political, economic, and environmental systems, and advocates for solutions that combat both climate change and societal injustices, both things we care about as well. Before joining Population Connection, Hannah worked as an adjunct professor of women's studies and taught classes on gender, science, and feminist theory. She holds her BA in Environmental Policy and Natural Resource Conservation and Political Science and a master's degree in Political Ecology from San Diego State University. Super excited to have her on the pod today. Hannah, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll start you off with a question we do all our guests. When you think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's something that's really important to think about, uh, especially given all of the sort of doomsday portrayals of things through our media outlets and otherwise. I think that at the micro level, in terms of what's happening at the community and regional levels, um, and in terms of incremental change, I think that, that there's a lot happening. There's a lot to be hopeful for and excited about. I think that youth movements are something that really makes me very hopeful because all across the world, we're seeing young people take to the streets and you know, really call out their leaders for failing at, you know, providing um, a stable, sustainable earth and future. So I really like what's happening in youth circles. I think that that's one of the, the things I turn to whenever I'm, I'm feeling hopeless. Um, right. I'm, I'm really impressed by the younger generations and their capacity to really incite change at all levels of society. One other thing that's happening that's really interesting and I think necessary in, in successfully combating climate change is this sort of newfound focus on identifying the interconnected systems of oppression that are simultaneously destroying the environment and humanity as we know it. Um, I right. think that there's, there's a real emphasis on kind of identifying the broader structures that are contributing to and causing climate change, but that also subjugate, oppress, and um, exploit human beings. Um, women, children, marginalized groups, different sort of societies and cultures, countries around the world. And I think that awareness um, is really, really necessary for us to, again, kind of successfully confront climate change and address it in ways that will be sustainable. We need to fundamentally change what we're doing. Yeah, it is. It is exciting to see. And I think, you know, you put it well that we have this, obviously this existential crisis, but it it's helping kind of peel the layers back or at least help people recognize that there are these other injustices that if we, if we aren't careful about how we tackle climate change, we'll just be magnified. Well, since we're going to be talking about um, population growth, I wanted to ask you how you found your way um, to your role at, at Population Connection. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I kind of came about uh, this position um, and this organization somewhat randomly. I was looking for jobs out of grad school after having decided that I was not going to pursue the academic route um, and found found this one. It was a it was not the position that I'm in now that was being offered. It was a sort of lower level communications position that was stationed in San Diego. And I I thought that the the organization overall and it and its uh, sort of multifaceted approach to development and advocacy was very interesting. Um, and I applied and got the job. And I've been working here for, I think, about five years now, almost. Um, so nice. it's been it's been really great. I, I went to undergrad and grad school really thinking that I was going to pursue a, a career in academia. And so a lot of my studies were more academic in their approach, less sort of applied. But this position and this organization has uh, been a really good fit for my uh, for my education overall, which I, I consider to be a, a lucky thing. Well, it's it's certainly a critical thing. You know, we're you know we're talking obviously about kind of the nexus of the two, but um, yeah. Well, let's 
let's kind of help people index on kind of like where, you know, where is world population today for folks who may not be aware? And how does this sort of compare to what some call like the Earth's carrying capacity? Yeah, so the Earth is about to inhabit about 8 billion people. The UN's recent estimates uh, for population projections, which came out a couple of weeks ago, actually, project that there's going to be 8 billion people on the planet likely by November of this year, which is a truly incredible milestone. I think that for most people, myself included, even conceptualizing the number 1 billion is like almost unfathomable. Now we've got almost 8 billion people on the planet. And what's even more kind of disconcerting is that it only took us 11 years to go from 7 billion to 8 billion people. So that wow. sort of growth trajectory is is unprecedented and really pretends a lot of you know challenges uh, for the future, especially within the context of climate change and climate adaptation. For most of human history, population growth has been pretty stable. Death rates have been really high in accordance with uh, high fertility rates, which has created a really sort of stabilized and not very quickly growing uh, dynamic. Following the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, death rates fell really significantly, primarily because of large-scale advancements in like public health, technology, food production, and so on. And since then, our global population has essentially skyrocketed. So you're probably familiar with the J-curve that depicts uh, the history of population growth over time. And you'll see if you look at that graph that for most of human history, it remains, you know, there's a really steady, very low sort of um, trajectory of population growth. And then right at 1800, it springs up to create what's called a J-curve. So this is uh, a challenge in social, economic, and environmental terms. And although growth rates are falling significantly and have been, because there's such a huge amount of uh, people on the planet already, and because there's a really large proportion of young people on the planet, gro uh, population growth is going to continue for many generations and will likely stabilize somewhere around the year 2100. But that's largely dependent on whether or not we, as a global community, really invest in developmental solutions that allow for fertility rates to fall in a human rights-based way. In terms of carrying capacity or the Earth's sort of ability to sustainably provide resources and maintain a healthy environment and ecological dynamic? That's a really complicated question because uh, ultimately scientists don't actually know what the carrying capacity of the earth is. And that's largely because humans interact with the environment and consume resources at completely different levels throughout society. For example, if you know everybody lived like the average middle-class American, you probably heard the, this analogy that we would need more than one planet to sustain that level of consumption and that level of environmental degradation. But the fact yeah. is, there's, you know, most people on the planet are not living like middle-class Americans and do not have consumption rates that are anywhere near as high. And it also depends on our, you know, reliance or not on. Um, extractive industries, on fossil fuels, on unsustainable land use practices, and so on. That said, I think that a really good kind of analysis of human impact on the environment is done by the Global Footprint Network, 
um, which is an organization that comes out and, and produces research that um, sort of weighs Earth's capacity to regenerate its resources against human demands. Um, okay. And yeah, they, they come out with the uh, Earth Overshoot Day, which this year fell on July 28th. Um, so Earth Overshoot Day is the day of the year that humans have used all of the Earth's resources for that entire year. So this year it was July 28th, and each year it's progressively you know, falling sooner and sooner. They've also come out with, with estimates recently um, sort of showing that humanity now demands 60% more of our planet than its ecosystems can renew. But in order for us to maintain 85% of the Earth's biodiversity, which is very ne necessary for us um, if we're interested in creating a, a sustainable planet over time, you know, human demands, according to their estimates, should only use half of what the planet can provide. So this means that current demand exceeds that goal by at least a factor of three. And as you were mentioning, I, you know, there are many different contributing factors to this ecological imbalance. Population growth is, is one piece of a much broader and you know, more complex issue. Certainly fossil fuel production um, is one of the major culprits. We've got sort of the, the way that our you know, global economy is structured and, and um, the way in which it places value on consumption. You know, there's, there's a lot of like right. really deep issues here. But I think you know, fundamentally, one of the most important factors behind this growing imbalance is the continued growth of the human population. As you said before, I think that there's like a real reluctance to talk about this um, and we need to figure out how to reintegrate it into the mainstream so that we can address, you know, population and talk about it as one of these contributing factors. I think that there's some really valid reasons why there's a reluctance to uh, talk about population and the environment in the same sentence, but given the imminent threats posed by climate change and all of the other interconnected issues we're all facing, we need to be able to, to talk about this openly and in a way that's constructive uh, because it is, it is a, a really big problem. The last thing I'll say is, you know, 75% of our global population is in a stage of rapid industrialization. It represents the, the period of time that a country produces the most amount of greenhouse gases relative to, to other times, um, which ultimately will increase consumption patterns. This is something that, you know, unless we change the way that we produce food and energy, this is going to present a lot of massive issues with regards to food security, the availability of arable lands, you know, fresh water. And this is not to, to blame any sort of any society or to, to infer that we should, you know, control in any way, the way that people are living. But this is just to say, like, this is part of the problem. We need to talk about it openly and we need to discuss it and we need to use it um, as justification for really changing the way that we're doing things. This is a necessary part of addressing climate change. You know, certainly want to be thoughtful in the way that we have the dialogue. But, you know, I would argue that the the alternative is much worse, right, which is to continue to pretend that things are going to be fine and that we don't have issues only to, you know, be hit with that at the 11th hour and have it be a much more forced painful change as opposed to, you know, a voluntary change. So you, you've spoken to this a little bit already, and, and I know, you know, these things are complex naturally, but, you know, how are climate change and population growth interrelated? 
So population and climate change are directly linked and related, but the, the relationship is complex and nuanced. And I think that, you know, this is one reason why there's an aversion to, you know, addressing this issue is because it is complex and it requires, you know, taking some time to explain and to, and to research what the foundations are and, and in what ways it's contributing to climate change and affected by climate change. You know, at the sort of societal level, you know, population growth along with consumption tends to increase carbon emissions, which cause climate change. In terms of recognizing the links between population and climate change, of course, you know, population growth and increased consumption patterns contribute to emissions and contribute to climate change. But it's also really important to understand that population growth alone is not the sole or number one contributor to large-scale environmental damage like that of climate change. Most of the world is living in sort of low-income or, or middle-income situations, and the fact is a very small proportion of the global population consumes an overwhelming majority of the Earth's resources and produces a similarly right. disproportionate amount of, of CO2. In terms of affluence, I think that there's a direct correlation between CO2 emissions and carbon footprints, right? The more affluent societies are, the higher the level of, of CO2 emissions at the individual levels. Um, and then at the sort of lower income scales, we've got the issue of climate vulnerability. So uh, population growth is actually occurring most severely. Fertility rates are the highest in places that are the lowest income. And that's because there's a direct correlation between poverty and fertility rates. So places that are considered marginalized without access to vital resources, uh, social, economic, or environmental resources, tend also to have the highest overall fertility rates and the highest unmet need for contraceptives. Um, so these are the regions that are growing the fastest. And in many cases, they're also the most vulnerable to climate change. So there's a, a really complex relationship. Um, obviously, population is intimately related to climate change, but I think it's best when to, to analyze this um, according to socioeconomic status um, throughout right. the world. Yeah, and we, you know, we've certainly with our listeners talked on many episodes about how when you when you talk about per capita emissions, it's very different. You know, when you look at you know countries that are that are poor, or less developed than you know, Europe and the United States, Australia. So this is the part where I think some people are thinking, oh my gosh, one more thing, you know, to worry about and, and you know, to be depressed about. Um, so yes, a serious problem and one that we all should be aware of, but wondering if you could talk about, you know, some of the solutions that are out there and, and maybe even success stories in terms of being able to shift those fertility trends in a way that are more sustainable. At the broader levels, uh, our organization works to highlight the vital role that women's empowerment and um, education and healthcare, specifically for women and girls throughout the world, can play in uh, in helping uh, not only you know climate adaptation and resilience building, but also mitigation efforts. Right now, there's hundreds of millions of girls who are denied access to basic primary school and education. That yields much higher fertility rates overall. Um, aside from being a, a massive human rights violation, 
It often results in girls marrying early, earlier, having children from younger ages, and in, in more numbers overall than would otherwise be the case if they were educated. In addition to that, education provides increased opportunity for economic development um, and you know, really helps people transcend poverty, which is another way of uh, slowing population growth. As women gain access to vital resources like education, like healthcare, including family planning, like economic opportunity, um, if they gain access to natural resources like arable lands, those are all precursors for lower fertility rates overall. And, and that's because whenever women are empowered um, to, to make their own decisions about the jobs that they want to pursue, about the education that they um, obtain and so on, then you know, they often choose to have fewer children and the children they do have are healthier overall. So we as an organization really work to make these connections visible throughout the world. And we also advocate for increased US funding for family planning programs internationally. Whenever women have access to you know, the full range of reproductive health care, they can successfully you know, make the, the very fundamental human right decision of when, when, whether, and with whom to become pregnant. That yields drastic uh, results with regards to slowing population growth, with regards to women's empowerments and uh, societal advancements overall. Um, in addition to that, it's very clear that, you know, at the fundamental levels, we have to change the way that we are doing things. Our global economic system that is, uh, that relies on fossil fuel production and that views growth through consumption has to change. Um, but we, there's a lot of solutions out there that are available to us if, if we just look. So that, that's hopeful and something that I, I try to remind myself of whenever I become uh, sort of depressed about the current state of things. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a good reminder. So when I'm hearing you talk about solutions for, you know, population growth, it sounds like women's education or girls' education is, is first and foremost. It sounds like, you know, in conjunction with that, providing access to, to family planning. And then, you know, I'm hearing, you know, gender equality and, and addressing poverty. Um, are there places that have done that well? That's a good question. I think that there are several countries that have really invested very heavily in education and in particular family planning, um, voluntary family planning. Um, places like Thailand, places like Bangladesh, Uganda, and Rwanda come to mind um, in particular as, as being really great models for uh, slowing population growth through rights-based uh, advancements in healthcare and education. I think that there are movements all across the world to kind of better establish gender equality, but you know this is still a, a really ongoing issue and something that's like very heavily embedded within our social, political, and economic structures to the extent that some would, some would call it uh, endemic to capitalist production and expansion. That's not to say that it's, uh, it's insurmountable, but I think that it's, it's a challenge that um, countries all over the world are facing despite their socioeconomic status or their level of development. So, you know, with, with any, you know, topic and we're, talking about solutions, we always try to want to give our 
our listeners opportunities to to get engaged, especially if it's something that that resonates for them. So wanted to ask you, you know, for folks who especially are in in the developed world, what can we do as individuals to contribute to the solutions you just mentioned? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of different ways to to contribute to those issues. Um, and, you know, the focus does not necessarily have to be international. I think that domestically there are a lot of the same issues, primarily because, you know, poverty is something that, that impacts uh, development no matter where it is. And in terms of reproductive rights, it's apparent, obviously, that uh, you know, there's a lot of work to do in the United States as well. If you're interested in international development and promoting gender equality, there are many different organizations, obviously Population Connection being one of them, but there are many others as well that focus on um, particular sort of aspects of gender equality, whether it be reproductive rights expansion, the provision of direct services for family planning and reproductive health care, um, organizations that are involved in behavior change in sort of culturally appropriate appropriate developmental solutions that work to confront the, the cultural barriers to having smaller families and slowing population growth through reduce, reduced fertility. So it's about really figuring out what what it is that you're most passionate about and, you know, figuring out the ways in which you want to approach um, making an impact on this planet. I like that. It's a, it's a great call to action. Yeah, just great to hear you, you know, in a way sort of say to folks, hey, find what, what you know, you feel passionate about and, and focus your energy there. So as we're having this conversation uh, about, you know, family planning and reducing fertility rates, et cetera, I'm hearing you use the word voluntary, you know, over and over again. And can't help but think of you know countries that have taken an approach that that is that is not a voluntary one, and just wanted to kind of you know get your get your thoughts on that. Yes, that's a, a really important discussion and talking point uh, whenever we're looking at the connections between population and the environment. And I'm glad that you brought this up because it reminds me of another kind of uh, point of resistance against talking about population. Um, which is that globally speaking, the world's poorest populations are growing the fastest, but they have little to no environmental impact. And in the 1960s, whenever there was a lot of a lot more sort of mainstream attention that was focused on the impacts of population growth, the sort of uh, mainstream understanding of things was that population growth was going to lead to mass famine, was going to lead to natural resource degradation to the extent that, you know, humanity was going to become extinct. It was like this apocalyptic portrayal of, um, you know, the, the effects, the direct effects of rapid population growth. And of course, rapid population growth was occurring in, in these poor industrializing places that are not contributing at all to large scale environmental degradation. Um, and, and out of that sort of way of thinking came a lot of the sort of coercive population policies and uh, justifications. And so the, the response to, to all of that, you know, in the, the 80s and, and 90s and into today has been to say, there's absolutely no uh, justification for talking about population growth as, a, as an environmental um, issue. And, you know, we're not going, you know, organizations have taken population off of their agendas, environmental organizations in particular, 
And it's all been in an effort to identify these really sort of contentious and fraught histories related to population growth and uh, coercive agendas. Um, but again, you know, there's a way to talk about population growth and, uh, you know, it's, it's effects on the environment and on societies and on, you know, economies in ways that in ways that promote rather than, you know, sort of subjugate human rights. And that's kind of what our focus is and has been. So I, I didn't appreciate that history that you just articulated and the fact that there were sort of there was this very sort of damaging dialogue, it sounds like, that led to or contributed to the reality today. Whereas, but, but that certainly makes sense. And I think it's good to hear, you know, you talk about the fact that there is an opportunity to have that dialogue. It just needs to be done thoughtfully in a way that um, helps not, you know, hurts these countries that are, that are already struggling with so much. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's it's really important to understand the history of population as it relates to the environment, as it relates to population control measures, as it has evolved over time. But now it is fundamentally rooted in rights and empowerments uh, for people, the planet, and um, our society. You know, I think that. Uh, we need to, again, figure out ways to to talk about population and its links to very various societal issues um, because we don't have, you know, the, the luxury not to. Um, and we're running out of time to be able to address the climate crisis in a way that's going to save millions and billions of lives. Um, we need to be looking at this and approaching it with the urgency it deserves. Well, thanks again, Hannah, for taking the time to come on and educate us on a, a very complex, but nonetheless a very critical topic that, that we all would benefit from knowing more about. Certainly learned a lot myself. And yeah, I think you know learning is the first step, right? You have to have that awareness before you can take action on a problem. So, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to, to get to talk to you and to tease out these, these issues. Thomas, what did you think of the interview with Hannah? She definitely brought up a lot of thoughts that have been floating around in my head for a long time. Um, I think many of these <laughs> items have been avoided to a larger extent in the whole climate change discussion. Um, and I, I think it's sort of the, the elephant in the room that really needs to be tackled because we can go and generate all this renewable energy. We can close the loop on many of these things, but unless we work out how to limit this exponential population growth, we're never going to get on top of solving climate change, let alone all the other environmental impacts that are happening simultaneously. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it really is about, you know, in my mind, acknowledging that elephant in the room, because if you can't talk about a problem, you can't really solve it. And, and, you know, I think one of the keys to talking about overpopulation and Hannah hinted at this is the other elephant in the room really for the, the developed world, which is we're consuming too much. Right. So at the end of the day, we need to focus on both things. The, you know, richer countries need to focus on consuming less. You know, we can't have this throwaway economy. We need to be accounting for the environmental impact of things. And then you, you know, the countries that still have a rapid population growth need to be focusing on voluntary family planning, like Hannah talked about. And, you know, the, the thing is that this shouldn't be controversial stuff, right? I mean, 
you know, girls' education, access to contraception, and gender equality are things that most people would agree are, are good in any developed society. So yeah, we got to talk about it first before we can, before we can solve it. And I, I think for many years, it's, it's worked in the favor of uh, th- those in power and those with <clears throat> certain religious organizations to encourage population growth. Um, but that only benefits you to a certain point. There eventually gets a point where the Ponzi scheme of population growth finally implodes. And we've, we've, we've seen this at a historic level well, quite a number of times. If you, you look back through history at you know, what happened at, at Easter Island and you know, previous Mayan civilizations and, and the uh, ancient civilizations in North Africa, where we pushed the local resources to breaking point because of population growth. And then finally, the population collapses. So we're sort of now doing that at a, at a global level. Um, so if we can get ahead of the curve and get the population under control before the environment forces us to collapse, then everybody's life in the long term becomes a lot more palatable rather than having these things forced upon us. Indeed. I mean, you know, obviously climate change and an overpopulation are, are linked in many different ways, but you look at what's going on right now globally in terms of food supply shortages with having the war in Ukraine, and that's only going to get worse with climate change. So we're going to have more and more volatility in our food supply. And if at the same time, our population continues this rapid growth, it's only going to be a matter of time before mother nature intervenes. And, you know, that's going to be a lot more pain and suffering associated with it. So yeah, I agree. We need to, we need to be able to get ahead of the curve and and do this the right way. And for those that you know like to talk about the fact that the declining fertility rate is going to cause a massive population implosion, I, I take cases like Japan where basically the population's really not increased since about the 1990s. And in 2008, the population peaked at around 128 million people. It's now back to about 123 million people. I mean, they're not running around on the streets and it hasn't turned into complete anarchy and the whole society hasn't <laughs> collapsed, right? You just, it gives you this opportunity for, you know, I mean, we can even do a managed retreat from certain sections of um, the globe where we've, we've been pushing it too hard. We've been applying uh, agricultural principles that are totally unsustainable. I mean, we take the case right now in Turkey where they've got thousands of sinkholes opening up across all their agricultural land, which is swallowing entire buildings because they've sucked their aquifers dry. Now, sure, it's been blamed on climate change, but frankly, in my mind, it really doesn't have that much to do with climate change. Climate change didn't suck the aquifer dry. We suck the aquifer dry because we need to suck all that water out to grow crops that shouldn't have been grown in that type of country to feed an ever-increasing population. So I think it's like it's one of these things where we can either get ahead of the curve and we can do the right thing by the environment and do the right thing by civilization in the long run and live in a more sustainable manner or we can have it forced upon us. Yeah, I think I'm with you, Thomas. I, I definitely like the voluntary retreat over the, the forced one. And, uh, you know, I think folks probably heard it when Hannah mentioned it, but there's a, there's a day called Earth Overshoot Day, which is tied to kind of the Earth's ecological footprint and sort of a measure of sustainability 
where basically it looks at you know human consumption versus kind of what the planet can replenish and you know while there may be some critics about you know the accuracy of the model the bottom line is the trend is in in the wrong direction they've been tracking earth overshoot day since 1971 when you know the first earth overshoot took place in late december and now we're in 2022 and it took place in late july so you know regardless of whether we're consuming you know 1.7 you know planet earth's worth of resources or whether it's 1.2 what we're doing isn't sustainable and i think that's really the the bottom line and i guess it really leads into the basic question of of what can we do and you know the beauty is as Hannah pointed out, there's a ton of options here. You know, whether you're passionate about, you know, women's choice or girls' education or access to family planning. And in my mind, like always, t- the real change comes when we have system change, which comes at the at the political level. And in order to do that, you need to both have an awareness of the problem and you need the political will to do something about it. And in my mind, population connection is doing a great job of both. So this week, we'd like to encourage folks to consider a donation of time, money, or even both to Population Connection and their grassroots network. And to add to that, Jason, I I think it's important that we all just start this conversation. It's been drummed into us for so many years by the powers that be that uh, build their businesses and their political empires on an ever-growing population base, that it's, it's important that we we start to change this conversation and and don't live in this fear that all of a sudden that if we you know do start leveling out the fertility growth rates that society is going to implode it's not we've seen that in places like Japan when it does implode is situations like Easter Island where we chop down that last tree on the entire island um, to fill fulfill our resource demand and then it implodes in an ugly manner so just get that conversation started and don't live in fear that if the population stops growing, this pyramid scheme stops growing, that the whole whole thing's going to fall apart. It's not. Definitely encourage folks as well to go out and have that dialogue. You know, the more we can get that out there, the more it becomes mainstream and the more we can have a fact-based conversation about the solutions. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Come back next week when we'll be digging into all the juicy details of the Inflation Reduction Act and what it means for the U.S. and the climate. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Podcast.